Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. You're listening to episode 38. The idea for this book came, I was reading, part of my process is I just read headlines. You know, I don't read the story so much, I read headline after headline after headline until I find one that's interesting to me. And in 2018 or 19, I read a headline that the New York Medical Examiner's Office had identified a victim of 9-11 in 2018. And I thought, how does that work? And so I started looking into how this happens, and it's a real thing. This is author Charlie Donnelly talking about the real thing that inspired his latest thriller titled 20 Years Later. He's explaining how the mystery fiction he created stemmed from the latest DNA extraction technology. And in September of this year, two victims were identified from 9-11, 20 years later. So this was sort of this story that I created in my mind from an article I read in 2016 or 2018 that then came to life when I was done with this manuscript. 20 years later, people are still being identified. And that's the instigator of this story. Yeah, it was a great jumping off point because I literally went to the computer and was like, is that happening? Mm-hmm. How And how amazing that someone had the foresight to say, we should store everything. We should sift through, take everything we could possibly get because science is going to catch up with us. That's remarkable. Yeah. Farsightedness. It's like really smart people were involved in that. And I was able to talk with Mark Desire, who was one of the directors at the crime lab in, in New York City. And he took me through exactly Mm -hmm. how this process obviously in the book i can't go into great detail it'll bog down the story but hopefully i I go into enough to make it sound realistic and to make it interesting i mean they take tiny bone fragments and they pulverize them and liquefy them in order to extract dna and then they take that dna and they compare it against dna that was provided to them by family members from toothbrushes or from hairbrushes of their loved ones. They gave that 20 years ago to the New York crime lab so that they would have a reference source of DNA. And now today they're finally being able to extract DNA from these human remains. And they start seeing if they match any of the DNA samples provided. Yes. And you do it in just a few short paragraphs. The idea of these scientists in a lab day after day after day, and the excitement that they feel at getting a hit on like, oh, this is a match. And yeah, I, I thought it was a brilliant way to start the story. And I love it when fiction feels realistic, you know, right. it, but because I think it gets to that where I really then am in the story. I have escaped completely into that storyline because it could happen. So your inscription says, from invention is born progress, 
from reinvention is born freedom. This idea of reinvention is a real theme in the book. Reinvention is a theme that runs throughout and is touches almost every character in the book. Yes. Avery Mason, who's our protagonist, she obviously is reinventing herself as a television journalist. While Jenkins is reinventing himself, coming from sort of a disgraceful exile from the FBI, surviving and recovering from survivor's guilt. You know, and without giving away too many spoilers, if you go through every character in the book, they're all uh, reinventing themselves in some way, including small secondary characters like Walt's FBI boss, who is trying to land a huge success and solve a huge case before he retires and to kind of rewrite what his career was. So it's a theme that that sort of touches every part of the book and every character in the book. How purposeful was that for you? My biggest uh, goal when I sit down and write an outline comes from advice John Gisham gave, which is don't write the first chapter until you know how you think the last chapter is going to end. Because mm-hmm. if I know how the last chapter is going to end, it at least is like a beacon in the night that helps me navigate. But I don't know all the details in between. And so when I find this quote on the internet, from invention is born progress, from reinvention is born freedom, suddenly I see that that theme has been throughout the book. But when you go back and you do an edit and you do a rewrite, now that theme's in my mind and I can enhance it with the characters. Yes, that's fascinating. I love the image of the last chapter being a beacon that you're writing towards that from the beginning. I like yeah, that. because knowing at least what you want the last chapter to look like, who you want the villain to be, what you want the protagonist to accomplish, if you can have a rough sketch of that, writing in the middle, you'll be less likely to get lost at that part because you'll say, this doesn't make sense with how I want the book to end. And it'll keep you focused and sort of headed in the right direction. There are a few characters who are storytellers in this book. Um, A couple are successful authors. At one point, Cameron says to Victoria, a writer is someone who writes, not just someone who sells published books. And I wondered, were you ever at a point where you were a writer who was just writing and not publishing and selling books? Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah, so my first novel was Summit Lake, and it was published in 2016. That was the fourth full-length manuscript that I had written. All wow. the others were rejected uh, multiple times by hundreds of agents and scores of publishers in New York uh, and lots of imprints and publishing houses. So, you know, I started writing years and years before my first novel was published. The best advice I've ever received was from an agent who hated my first manuscript and told me never to submit it again because it'll never be published. I managed a phone call with him, said, I think you know how to write, but I don't think you know how to write a thriller. So when I asked how, how should I figure this out? He told me to go read a bunch of thrillers. 
and mm -hmm. read from the writer's perspective and then write from the reader's perspective. I read Robert Ludlum and John Grisham and Dennis Lane and Patricia Cornwell. And I read their novels as not a fan of fiction, but as a student of thrillers and trying to figure out how did they create suspense? How yes. did they make a character likable? How did they make a villain someone I wanted to root against? What did mm -hmm. they do at the end of a chapter that made me want to turn the next chapter? Okay, I'm going to stop Charlie right there, but I promise we'll come back to the lessons he's learned in his writing career in just a few minutes. But first, we'll focus on the story. Let's start by talking about water and the role it plays in the novel. In the lives of the main characters, Avery, a TV news host looking into a 20-year-old murder case, and Walt, the original lead detective assigned to that case. Um, you have a lot of remote locations. I felt like there was a really common denominator of water in these places. And I wondered if you as a writer are calmed by water. I know you live in Chicago. Mm -hmm. So why do you feel like these locations, these settings had this element of water in them, all of them? That's an interesting question. I don't know that I ever completely thought of that. I'll tell you that whenever we go on vacation, we go to water. Yeah. And so yeah, writing by the ocean is like my, my dream to do. And I'm sure that, that the calming effects of of water and sailing. I'm sure that just sort of penetrates into the story unknowingly. Yes. Well, you even say at the end, you tell your readers that I'm grateful you have plucked my novel out of the sea of entertainment <laughs> options. The water was in this novel, the water plays a significant role in the story. Um, yes. Water plays an important role in Avery's story and in uh, Avery's past. You know, without giving spoilers, it ties back to Walt's time in Jamaica, Walt Jenkins' time in Jamaica. He's the yes. FBI agent. It ties back to Avery's time in Sister Bay, Door County, Wisconsin, when she was a kid. They're all linked together. And that's, again, if, I don't want to give too many spoilers, but yeah, there's, there's yes. clues there that you can use. And even if you don't see the arc of the story before you reach it, you can then look back and say, now I got it. Okay, so one of my favorite characters, he makes a small appearance twice in the book. His name is Dr. Lockard. And I think you wrote him with humor. I think that's part of why I was just attracted to him. Um, but I also think that it's, really, that it's really natural to think that someone who pursues a career as a medical examiner, as a forensic biologist, is a little dark, mm -hmm. right? Or a little like works with the dead. Yeah, so in my second novel, which is called The Girl Was Taken, the protagonist is a medical examiner. But she is a, a young, vibrant, you know, outgoing woman. You know, I, I wrote her so readers would be interested in her for 300 pages. This is a medical examiner in, in 20 years later, Dr. Dr. Lockard, who is sort of dark and morbid and yes. really hard to read. Because his mind is, you know, he never smiles. His mind is working so diligently sort of behind the scenes that when mm -hmm. they look at the facade of him, they don't know what to make of him. Yeah. Um, and I love this character so much because he does 
even though he's a morbid sort of morbidly portrayed character, he adds comic relief to story and, and in some really um, important parts of the story when the reinvestigation of this murder mystery is taking place, Dr. Lockhart ends up becoming a key sort of a consultant. Yeah, he has information inside his brain that no one really knew he, he had about this case. And when they revisit it 20 years later, uh, they go back and talk with this doctor. And um... Okay, let's pause there in our conversation with Charlie. And let's listen to some of the evidence he was just talking about. This is a few minutes from the very beginning of the book. It's the part where Detective Walt Jenkins is at the scene of the murder in 2001. This is from 20 Years Later by Charlie Donnelly, narrated by the talented Vivian Leheny, produced by Highbridge Audio, a division of recorded books. In addition to the latex gloves covering the detective's hands, plastic wraps now enclosed his shoes as he walked into the bedroom. The balcony doors opened inward and allowed the same breeze that had earlier filled his nostrils with the smell of death to gust through the bedroom. The pungent odor was less noticeable here, one story higher than where death hung in the morning air. He stood in the doorframe and moved his gaze around. This was clearly the master suite. Vaulted ceilings were twenty feet high. A king-sized four-poster bed stood in the middle of the room, with a night table on either side. A dresser sat against the far wall, its mirror reflecting his image back at him. Through the open balcony doors, the white rope curved up and over the railing to run at waist height across the room and into the closet. He stepped into the room and followed the rope. The closet had no door, just an arched entryway. When he reached it, he saw a spacious walk-in filled with neatly organized clothes hanging from scores of identical hangers. Shoes filled the thick pine cubby holes that covered the back wall. Amid the cubbies was a black safe, about five feet tall, likely weighing close to a ton. With an ornate knot, the end of the rope was tied to one of the legs of the safe. The other end, the detective knew, was attached to the man's neck. And whether he jumped off the balcony or was pushed, the safe had done its job. The four legs indented the carpeting with no adjacent depression marks to suggest the weight of the man's body had moved it even an inch. A large kitchen knife lay on the floor next to the safe. Morning sunlight spilled through the balcony doors and into the walk-in closet, painting his shadow across the floor and up the far wall. He pulled a flashlight from his pocket and shined it at the carpeting, highlighting the small fibers next to the knife. He crouched down and examined them in the bright glow of his flashlight. They appeared to be bits of frayed nylon from when the rope had been cut. Within the carpet fibers was a small puddle of blood. A couple of droplets had also landed on the handle of the knife. He placed a triangle-shaped yellow evidence placard over the blood and fibers, and another next to the knife. He turned and walked out of the closet. Noticing a nearly empty wine glass on the night table, he was careful not to disturb it as he placed another yellow evidence marker next to it. Lipstick smeared the rim. 
High-stepping over the taut rope, he walked past the mirrored dresser and into the bathroom. He slowly looked around and saw nothing out of place. Soon the forensics team would be in here with luminol and black lights. At the moment, the detective was interested in his first impression of the place. The toilet lid was open, but the seat was down and dry. The toilet water held a yellow color and the pungent smell of urine registered now as his nose caught up with his eyes. Someone had used the toilet, but failed to flush. A lone segment of toilet paper floated in the bowl. Another evidence placard found the toilet. He walked from the bathroom and into the main area, once again surveying the room. He followed the rope out to the balcony and looked down at the dead man hanging from the other end, in the distance, the Catskill Mountains were cloaked by early morning fog. This was the house of a very wealthy man, and the detective had been handpicked to figure out what had happened to him. In just a few minutes, he had identified blood evidence, fingerprints on a wine glass, and a urine sample that likely belonged to the killer. He had no idea at the time that all of it would be matched to a woman named Victoria Ford and the detective could not have predicted that in two short months, just as he had every bit of evidence organized and a conviction all but certain, commercial airliners, American Airlines Flight 11 and United Airlines Flight 175, would fly into the twin towers of the World Trade Center. On a sun-filled blue-sky morning, 3,000 men and women would die, and the detective's case would go up in smoke. Twenty years has passed since this murder investigation uh, went up in smoke after 9-11. Right. And now, 20 years later, Avery Mason is reinvestigating this murder. Walt Jenkins, who, who has since become an FBI agent, but used to be, at 28 years old, was the lead detective investigating this murder. They both come at it from different perspectives. Avery's learning about it for the first time. Uh, but Walt is sort of relearning and re-remembering it by reading old uh, case notes and transcripts, uh, interview transcripts. So as he's reading it, I mean, I think this happens to us all the time. We remember one way, but when you get reintroduced to it, you realize that the years manipulated your memory. It sort of yes. changed your memory into something that might not have been exact at, at the moment. He was so convinced 20 years ago that Victoria Ford was guilty. And now that he's revisiting the murder with Avery's perspective in his ear, he's starting to realize, well, gee, it's not quite what I remember it to be. And maybe there is a different explanation to what happened. So, yeah, that's for sure memories and how memory gets manipulated over time. Yes. And that also, I think, is sort of how theme of memory intersects with how we deal with mistakes. Do we run from them or do we face them head on? And you have so many of your characters at that intersection. Yeah, of trying to decide what to do now, what reality is telling them now. Right. Now, what do you do with them? Okay. So for sure, our main, our protagonist is Avery Mason. She has this really difficult past of her father 
being involved in a, in a Ponzi scheme, very similar to Bernie Madoff. So she has this difficult time of loving her childhood and remembering all these things and then realizing that was all fake. It was all money that was stolen. And yeah, she's trying to figure out at that crossroads, how is she going to deal with her past? Her television audience isn't isn't fully aware of it because her success has come so quickly that in the last two years that no one's really caught up with, well, wait a minute, was your father this Bernie Madoff character? And so Avery's trying to figure out what to do with that. And So Walt tells her, get in front of it. You get ahead of it and you control your narrative. And the other thing that she does for him is she says, wow, this past that you've been kind of running from or hiding from, you need closure and forgiveness to move forward. Very specific to these characters and in this time mm-hmm. plot, but also really good life lessons. For think- sure. You know, I think as we talk about the craft of writing, you might be surprised to know Walt didn't start out as big of a character as he turned out to be. Mm. And Walt and Avery developed this working relationship first because they're uh, both working on sort of reinvestigating this cold case from 20 years ago. That working relationship starts to develop into something else, into something more. And that wasn't, that wasn't planned. That was something that came out through the writing process and then the, in the creative uh, process. But then the reason that that was able to sort of blossom in the writing was because of this exact reason. They, their past each were holding them back, but together they could give each other advice yeah. on how to move forward. And they did. And maybe all by themselves, they wouldn't have come to these conclusions, but together and with such a, you know, such a similar past where they both sort of hiding things and trying to move on together, they were able to see that and give each other the, the correct guidance to help them move on. So that, that's another part of the writing process that I love yeah. where I don't plan for them to help each other so much, but their stories get developed in such a way that it suddenly it makes sense. Ah, that's how they'll help each other. That's why their relationship turns into more than just a working relationship. Which is so also so much like life. You know, we're not omnipotent about our own lives and we need people in our lives to point things out to us, to help us grow. And I think what you did in this was through relationship, there was growth and closure. And, and it's nice to read a book where that kind of unfolds naturally, where they, you see how characters, fictionalized people help each other. Um, the last question I always ask authors, and we've touched a lot on what you probably believe are essential things, but I just want to give you a chance to tell me, um, as an author, what for you are, if you had to explain to somebody, this is essential to me, what would you say? Well, I'll answer it this way. We talked a little bit, my writing and facing rejection. Yeah. So over the course of many, many years, I I would write a manuscript which my very first one took about four years. And then I spent a year trying to find an agent and getting about a hundred rejections. 
before I got that advice from the agent that hated my book, but gave me really good advice. Then I spent another couple of years writing my second manuscript. I found an agent and then she and I spent a year trying to get that manuscript published and we met only with rejection. Mm. I had to put that aside and I started the third manuscript and faced the same issue. I wrote it for about two years. My agent and I then spent a year submitting it to publishing houses in New York and found nothing but rejection. She told me to write a fourth manuscript, at which point I stopped writing for a little while. Hmm. My agent came to ask me, where are you at in the manuscript? Are you having ideas? I said, yeah, you know, I'm thinking about a story. I haven't come up with anything. But in my mind, I had stopped writing because all those feelings of self-doubt had, had gotten into my head. Yeah. Maybe you're not good enough to break into the industry. You've tried this three times for 10 years. You've had yeah. nothing but heartache and rejection. Yeah. And so I stopped writing for about six months. And this really funny thing happened to me at about the six-month mark. I would wake up with this nagging thing that was bothering me. It kept bothering me every time I woke up. What is, did I miss a bill? Did, <laughs> is my wife mad at me? What's, are the kids, what's going on? Something's missing. Something's bothering me. What I realized was bothering me was that I had stopped chasing my dream. So I had to have this, this, this six months of sort of misery for me to realize that the most important thing in life is to chase your dreams. Mm-hmm. And if you give up on your dream, there'll be this void there that can't be filled with anything else. Yeah. And so for me, I have lots of great things in my life. I have a great marriage. I love my wife. I have healthy, vibrant kids. Um, yeah. I've had a really great career even before I, I wrote. But this writing dream of mine, this writing goal of mine, what I've learned from my writing career and what I tell my kids for sure is don't ever stop chasing your dream. Yeah. And the dream wasn't necessarily to be published, but to keep writing. Yeah. I mean, I want to be on every bestseller list and I want to (laughs) sell as many copies as John Grisham. There's no doubt about it, but in order to do that and reach those goals there's a bridge there you have to write a book and i had given up that dream of writing a book after i met with so much rejection and ironically it was only with that perspective of what i was hoping to achieve what i was hoping to achieve i asked myself why are you writing a book and john grisham's book the firm is the first book i ever read it gave me all those feelings i call it that book yeah oh my god i can't stop reading this thing I can't put it down. When you put it down, you can't wait to get back to it. When you get to the end, you start slowing down. You don't want it to end. That's what the first book I ever read, which was John Grisham's book, The Firm. That's what the book did to me. It gave me that feeling. And so when I sat down to try one more time with this fourth manuscript, I asked myself what I was hoping to achieve. And what I was hoping to achieve with writing was to produce for some random reader somewhere in the world, those same feelings that John Grisham's book gave to me. 
And with that perspective, I wrote Summit Lake, which has been published in 30 countries and has sold tons of tons of copies um, yeah. and has launched my career of 20 years later will be my sixth novel. But that's what did it for me, chasing my dream. And that's that's what I would tell you is my what I've taken out of my career. Yeah, most essential. I love that. Well, I'm glad you sat back down after six months. Glad that it led you to uh, 20 years later because I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed getting lost in it. And I did slow down at the end. I kept putting it down in the last hundred pages and thinking about all of the things that you exposed. Yeah, and I got to the end and thought, wow. So <laughs> thank you for that. You're thank welcome. You. It was a success. I, uh, that's, yeah. what was, that's what the book is supposed to do. So I, I love yeah. hearing, you know, writing is really isolating when you finally get the book out there so when you start hearing feedback like that it makes all the hours in solitude worth it thank you to vita at kensington press for connecting me with charlie for desideratum listeners kensington generously provides the discount code dp20 to use at checkout to save 20% across their incredible library, including pre-ordering Charlie's 20 Years Later. That's DP20 at kensingtonbooks.com. Also, please look for 20 Years Later on Libro FM, the audiobook produced by Highbridge Audio, a division of recorded books, will be available December 28th. I'll put the Desideratum podcast affiliate link with Libro FM in the show notes and the link tree on all our social media accounts. Using the affiliate link supports the podcast and a local bookstore of your choice through Libro FM. This has been episode 38. As always, thank you for listening.